Marketing success comes from identifying the right opportunities. And sponsoring the Up Next in Commerce podcast might just be the best opportunity you'll hear about today. With tens of thousands of listeners, expert creative, production, and strategic promotion teams at the helm, not to mention millions of impressions at the ready, this is a growth opportunity you should not ignore. Email me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with the Up Next in Commerce team. One of the things that really surprised me at the very beginning of takeoff is customer service and how critical that is. You can turn somebody from a quote Karen into an evangelist with a strong customer service team. And I think people underestimate how revenue generating that can be. Entrepreneurs are by nature risk takers, but most would still think it's crazy to invest your entire life savings in 300 gallons of rosé. Nevertheless, that's the true story of how Elise Peabody started her company, Bev. Sold online and in-store, Bev is a made-by-chicks alcohol company famous for its canned rosé. Elise says that Bev's secret to success is built on some key pillars, and the most important of which might surprise you, customer service. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Elise explains why e-commerce brands should be investing heavily into their customer service operations. Plus, she reveals how she is capitalizing on the huge percentage of buyers that come from mobile. Enjoy this episode. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Hey listeners, it's Stephanie. Before we dive into this episode, I was hoping you could please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It helps spread the word about the show and I would really love it. So please let me know how I'm doing and give me a rating, give me a review, let us know. All right, enjoy the episode. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles, co-founder at mission.org. Today on the show, we have Alix Peabody, the founder and CEO at Bev. Alix, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have you on. It feels like the perfect environment to talk about beverages with everything that's going on. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, so much, so much consumption in my world for sure. It's, it's been a little bit of a crazy time. Mine too. These days I have to limit myself. Like, wait, did I just have wine yesterday? The day before and the day before? Like I need to chill. I have to put myself on a plan. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, it's funny too, because like we've got moms with kids working from home and people trying to like separate their days and all, all that kind of stuff. So um, it's, uh, I, I feel for them, but you know, glad we can be here to help. Yes, me too. So I have read your backstory, a little bit of it, and you have a crazy backstory of why you started Bev. And I was hoping we could kind of start there where you go through what led you to starting it. Yeah. So it's kind of a crazy story. When I first moved to San Francisco, I was 24. I'd been working in finance for a couple of years and I moved out there thinking, you know, I wanted to learn a little bit more about the whole startup world and all that kind of stuff. And I took a job as an executive headhunter um, helping startups place C-suite level employees, essentially. And right when I moved there, I got pretty sick. So I had a whole bunch of issues with my reproductive health system, and I was totally drowning in medical bills. And I was trying to figure out 
you know, how I was going to pay for all of this stuff. I had to freeze my eggs. It was a total nightmare. And I started throwing these parties and I was charging tickets for these parties, which people didn't realize I was using to pay down a whole bunch of medical care. Um, and you know, I went to a school that was very frat centric. I worked in finance and I was in tech and I've always cared a lot about gender dynamics and drinking culture and kind of how we interact with one another when our guards are down. And I started to notice that there was just a really different energy when you're in a female owned social space. And at, at that point, I, you know, I kind of realized that I wanted to do something that addressed that in a way that was positive and fun and, and approachable. So started looking around, realized that I was going to really, you know, need a product to sell if I wanted to, to have a brand and a mission and alcohol kind of seemed like the lowest common denominator. So I, I weirdly ended up in wine. That's a perfect spot to land. I mean, so tell me a little bit about you come on, you know, you come onto this decision that you want to start in the alcohol industry. What happened next? Yeah. So, you know, I, I knew nothing about booze. I knew nothing about the industry. Um, and, you know, I really wanted to make a voice for women and, you know, and we say, and good dudes, um, in a space where there just really hasn't been much out there. I tried to figure out, you know, how was I going to sell this product? And there's so much legal stuff that goes into, you know, that goes into the, into the industry in general. It's so hard to get on a shelf because you have to go through all of these different loopholes. So I realized that there was, you know, there was kind of a loophole to the system, specifically in wine. And the reason for that is basically that if you're a California, California vineyard, you can have a tasting room and, and a wine club. And so I realized pretty quickly that I was going to need to have a wine-based product if I wanted to be able to sell online so that I could have a proof of concept before trying to get onto the shelf. That's how I ended up with rosé in a can as our, as our first product. Um, and thank you. Thank you so much. Um, it's funny. My, my cousin's handwriting is actually what's on the side of the can. It was our Whoa, original lo logo. That's good handwriting. I would not have known that someone's handwriting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We had to make our own font. It's kind of funny, but, um, but anyways, yeah. And, and so we, you know, I, I basically at that point I realized I, I had a 401k from my first job. Um, that I'd kind of forgotten about. I cashed the whole thing, bought 300 gallons of rosé, and we were off to the races. That's amazing. So what, like, where did you even send these 300 gallons of rosé? Yeah, I mean, so I actually, I wasn't even, don't tell anyone I said this, just kidding, anyone who's listening, but I, I wasn't even licensed at the time um, when I made our first sort of proof of concept. So I wasn't allowed to sell it. Mm-hmm. I had technically purchased it from a winery under their license as a direct-to-consumer sale. And so I used the product to go seed investors, basically. And I would bring it to all of these different parties. And then a couple of days later, you know, I'd, I'd ask for an introduction from a friend to a potential angel investor. And they'd be like, oh my gosh, that stuff was everywhere. You know, but I actually put it there. So it was kind That's of great. just like the hustle of starting to get our original round of funding. Mm -hmm. So since you bought that 20,000 or 300 gallons of rosé for $20,000, have you changed the product? Like, is it a new different kind of wine now? Like from where it started, where is it today? You know, honestly, we hit it pretty well in the beginning. 
wine is so interesting because there's so much chemistry that goes into the profile of making it. And so we'd basically done a whole bunch of taste, blind taste tests of a bunch of different types of, of rosé and just went to our winemakers and we're like, build us this, you know, mm-hmm. backwards. And so there's definitely been some fine tuning and, um, you know, and making making sure it's as delicious as possible and sugar-free and, and all that kind of stuff. But it's pretty similar to what it was at the beginning. Um, and now we, we have additional products as well that, that all kind of have a, have a similar profile, but are different varietals. Very cool. And what, what's the strategy behind putting it in a can? Yeah, you know, at the beginning, if people ask me this a lot because they're like, oh, cans are exploding and this is such a you know new category. When I did it, it was not normal. It was super hard to find somebody who would even can it. We're talking like three years ago before you really saw any canned wine on the shelf. And the reason I did it was pretty practical. I just, I had no money. Right. And Mm -hmm. so I was like, how am I going to make something that is branded and that people recognize if you pour it into a glass and you don't know what it is? Right. And so, you know, in my mind, I was like, well, if I make it kind of almost like Red Bull-esque, where it's a really identifiable can, it's cute, it's Instagram friendly, it, the product will start to market itself. And that's, that's how it ended up in a can. Honestly, it was not no real strategy at first. Um, but, you know, I also wanted to really be able to play against sort of the beer culture, um, which that seemed to make sense at the time. Yeah, I mean, that seems like such a great way to get that word of mouth marketing working for you, just like it kind of worked in the beginning with investors, but also, you know, having something that people share where it's different because I mean, even thinking about the amount of bottles of wine, like I wouldn't think to share one of them or even remember half the time, like where it came from or, you know, like the brand that's behind it. So it seems like a really unique way to get people to share for you. A hundred percent. And, and, you know, and if it's, if it's cute enough and, you know, fun looking enough and whatever people, you know, people want to, take pictures with it and they want to be seen holding it. And I think, you know, beverage is such an interesting category because people don't realize how emotional it is, but brands really drive a lot of the purchasing power in terms of, you know, what people choose to consume because it says a lot about, you know, who you are. Um, Think about Monster versus Red Bull. It's more emotional than people realize off the bat. I love that. So how are you going about um, garnering that emotion and developing that community, which seems like a very important part of why you even started this company. Like, how do you do that day to day now? Absolutely. I mean, there are so many different ways. I think we really are a digitally native brand, um, which is such an overused term. But, you know, we've really been able to build out a community online and get our message across through our social platforms and, you know, all all those types of things where people really know what we're about and and who we are and why we exist. And, you know, originally, like last year, there was a lot of event-based marketing that we did where we we had actual events that people could really get to know the brand. And obviously that all that all came to a quick halt in early 2020. You know, but now we have brand ambassador programs that actually have community ways that they you know they communicate with each other they find people to go out with together they find different like even like housing um it's really become more than just a brand ambassador in the traditional way but a real community where they are communicating with each other as well as with the company that's great have you seen any success with virtual things i mean you're you're mentioning the uh, brand ambassador and building a community online but are there other things that you kind of 
took your event budget and moved it over to something new to try out virtually? Yeah, I mean, we ha- we've done a few virtual events. I think people got a little tired from them, you know, a little early on. And, and I think, you know, where we've seen a lot of word of mouth growth and that kind of thing is, is actually because of the form factor, it's so easy for social distancing. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and it's an easier way to split a bottle, you know, you don't have to split a bottle of wine, use glasses, it's sanitary, stuff like that. And so we've seen a lot, you know, we've seen a lot of word of mouth coming from people ordering cans and being able to like sit outside far apart and, you know, and, and drink enjoying the same thing, um, which has been pretty interesting and not something that I would have thought of originally when, you know, when COVID hit, but, but that's definitely been something that's, that's worked in our favor. Oh, that's really interesting. Are you like leaning into that trend once you start seeing it pop up, like starting to create conversations around that and showing like, Hey, look what our other customers are doing. Oh, for sure. For sure. You know, and then in addition to that, in the, you know, in the, what we call on-premise, but like bars and restaurants and stuff like that, you know, it's so much easier for takeaway ordering something, being able to throw a can in a bag and, you know, and, and go do your thing has been, um, has been something that's been helping the category all around. So when you were building out your e-commerce platform and thinking about, you know, building out a shopping experience to sell alcohol online, especially one that caters to women, how did you think about setting up your website in a way that someone would go there and be like, oh, I want to order this right now, or I really feel a connection with this brand. Like what kind of things did you implement or personalization did you implement on the website? Like what things did you build out that really worked? Yeah. You know, I think it's funny because when we started, you know, when we first built the website and, you know, and my head of marketing who also happens to be my husband, um, (laughs) it's awesome. Well, that actually happened second. He was, he was recruited, uh, once after we got married, but, um, he was telling me like, we have to, you know, we have to invest in the website. We have to invest in the website. And at the time, I just, honestly, I didn't get it. Right. And I was like, our website looks fine. It's cute. It's whatever. Yeah. And I'm so glad that he did because it's made frictionless buying. I've, I've just started to, I've re- started to realize just how important that is. Things like Apple Pay and making sure that the web website's easy to navigate has really converted for us. And I think the other thing, you know, from a, from an emotional perspective, it's, it's been important for us to really make sure that, that um, who we are and why we are is front and center and easily accessible. And that's something that I think, you know, people start to poke around the website and they start to really get, I mean, I hope so anyway, like who we are and that, and that brings them into the family more. And we've seen that, you know, our repeat purchase rates are, are really strong because people become such advocates of, of not just the product, but the brand. That's great. How do you balance, because we've talked about this quite a bit on the show of, you know, brands like Bonobos or we had Yellow Leaf Hammocks on, and there's always this tricky balance between selling the brand and everything you're doing around the brand and, you know, um, maybe like the social good aspects or things like that, but then also selling the product and making sure people know like the product's very good. Like, how do you think about that balance, especially on a website where someone could quickly just come on there, look at something and then hop off? Oh, for sure. My favorite compliment is, wow, it's actually delicious because that means I know that (laughs) we get that all the time where it's like, oh, this is actually really good. And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, duh, I'm not going to sell you something that I wouldn't want to drink. But I also love that because it means, you know, people, people don't expect it to taste how it does out of a can and Mm -hmm. um, it's great. But, you know, I think, 
focus is so important when it comes to that. And I think the way that we really try to attack marketing is making sure that the messages that we're sending aren't too many and they're very focused on what on what we want to do, right? So for, for us, it's really made by chicks, zero sugar product. Our mission is break the glass, right? Like that's that's kind of what we really try to to hone in on. And there's a lot of A-B testing that goes into, okay, you know, which kind of consumers are really looking at the products um, and are buying for the first time because of the product versus buying for the first time because of the brand and the mission. And and I think a lot of the times people are gonna buy they're going to buy a product that they're excited about or that they've heard about or they want to try and then, you know, and then kind of become if they if they like it, that's just straight table stakes and that's when you start to see repeat and people really start to become evangelists. So, it is a fine line and one that I think is constantly evolving, but something I think the team has done has done a pretty good job of of navigating and just making sure that that it's focused. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Like the brand can draw people in or the purpose can draw them in, but then you actually have to have a good product and that's how you get your repeat buyers. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's, it's table stakes, right? Um, if, if it's not, if it's not delicious, if it's not actually delicious, yeah, you're actually good, you, you know? Yeah. If it's not actually good, then, you know, you're not, you're not going to get what you, what you want. Yeah. So earlier you were mentioning about investing in the website. What were some of the biggest changes that you all made along with, you know, you mentioned frictionless buying, but what other things did you update where you were surprised by, you know, increases in the metrics that you're watching or performance or buying rates? Yeah. Well, everything. I mean, we had to redo the entire thing. And for us specifically, there was a lot of programming that had to go to the back end to make sure that everything was compliant because we are alcohol. We are very there's a lot of legislation rather. And, and so it's, it, there was a lot of build out that had to go into that, you know, and then I think the other things that, that helped were having things like a chat on the site where you can reach out to customer service and these types of, of simple things. Um, and we're continuing to expand on that and, and stuff like loyalty programs because the repeats are, are so strong, you know, people want to recommend it to their friends and, there's been a lot of a lot of different things of that nature and and also just making sure that the tech stack on the back end is is strong so that we're learning right and and evolving as we see customer behavior so you build out this new platform you're trying out chatbots and everything like how what kind of metrics are you monitoring to see if things are going well like what do you look at every day or week for sure i mean obviously top line we're looking at AOV, um, average, average order value, you know, lifetime repeat rates are huge. Um, we have a subscription service on, on our website as well, uh, mm-hmm. because people really love their wine. Um, and so making sure we're keeping an eye on churn, things of that nature, pretty, pretty straightforward. But I think all of that is, is really important in understanding the health of the online business. How do you keep customers engaged, whether they're in a subscription or they just bought for the first time? What kind of methods are you using to engage with them and keep them coming back and keep them subscribed? We have a fair amount of email marketing that we do that that we found works really well. Um, we try to make sure that we have you know content that's interactive, and we're I think one of the things that really surprised me at the very beginning of takeoff is is customer service and how critical that is. Right, you can turn somebody from a quote Karen, if you will, into into an evangelist with with a strong customer service team. People underestimate how how revenue generating that can be. So that's definitely been a, been a big thing for us. And then 
you know, in addition, we've been doing SMS um, and a lot of things that kind of keep us top of mind without oversaturating people's inboxes and having them kind of unsubscribe or um, anything like that. And the other thing that, that I think is important is just, my husband always says this, but um, say what you do and do what you say, right? And so make sure, make sure that, you know, we are delivering orders on time. If we go out of stock, people will drop their subscriptions because they, you know, because they got their most recent one more suit, like later than they thought they would. And now that now it's, now they have too much wine or, or stuff like that. So really making sure that the execution behind the marketing is there is, is so critical. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning at business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. I want to dive a bit deeper into that building out a good customer service team because I think that's something that's really important that I don't see enough brands investing in. I want to hear how do you go about building out a team like that who can, um, like you said, turn a Karen into a loyal customer? Like what, what kind of training are you giving them? How do you think about building up that team? Yeah, so that team is really at the end of the day, but the heart and soul of the organization. And I think a lot of places make mistakes in not treating it as such. They're the voice of the brand. They're the literal person that people are communicating with. And so it's, we actually have a, have a policy where anyone who, anyone who starts, especially on, on the marketing team has to do two weeks of customer service. They have to understand who our customers are, how we talk to them, how we interact. It's critically important. And I think that team has to be so well trained on culture and brand voice and mission and making sure that they're constantly getting better at getting better, right? So implementing new systems, pulling insights from our customers, seeing what they're asking for, which helps us decide what new products to develop, all of those kinds of things. And so, you know, I think a lot of the time those positions can be undervalued. And at the end of the day, that's where you're going to get so much information and, and so much communication with, with your customer and so much insight into what you should be building. Yeah, I can see there being a lot of value too with, like you were mentioning, gathering that feedback and seeing what customers are asking for, seeing what the conversations are, and then kind of doing a full circle back to the team. So then they kind of know, okay, here's what other team members keep having to respond to. You probably will too. And just kind of using it as like a training method as you ingest that data, then giving it back to them. Yeah, exactly. So with that customer service team, like when you're getting all the feedback and all the data, how do you go about organizing it in a way that you can make decisions off of? So that is really the team lead, right? And so they, she pulls together reports for us um, on a weekly basis that are major insights. The team under her flags certain things that, you know, in different categories, whether it's major complaints that we're seeing or uh, major requests or what some of the positive feedback might look like, you know, 
obviously to me, the negative feedback is, is more important, right? Because that's where the real learnings are going to be. But we have, you know, we have a system of, of tagging in, in various categories to make sure that we're pulling those insights into the metrics that, that we find important. And if people are choosing to cancel, why are they choosing to cancel? Things like that. Um, and so that's reported up and, and we have, you know, a, a consumer insights meeting, at, you know, at least every other week. That's cool. What are, what's one of the most surprising insights or complaints that you've gotten that you were like, oh, I wouldn't have expected that? You know, unfortunately, some of the ones that I've found to be the most upsetting are, you know, people who like the product, but don't agree with how we communicate about the social issues we care about. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I think that's that's been a, a tough line because you know, we're here with a very specific mission and purpose and, you know, and we're, we're about women and women and men treating each other right and addressing toxic masculinity in a happy way. And, you know, we're very clear about our communication around things like sexual assault in our industry and, you know, and, and date rape culture and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, I've had moments where people write and they're like, keep your views to yourself. I would have kept drinking your product otherwise. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, I am happy that you guys stood up to those people because I think there's going to be room for more brands to start speaking up against crazies. Because right now I do feel like a lot of brands actually sometimes get bullied by whoever's loudest on the internet. And I think there's a lot of room for more brands to speak up like that behind the decisions that they're making instead of just conceding to the loudest person on the internet, which might not even represent the majority. A hundred percent. I mean, you know, the, the loudest, the loudest people are, you know, are the ones that, that drive conversation a lot of the time. And, you know, and I think brands fail when they try to be everything to everyone and we're, you know, that's not a brand, that's just a thing. Um, And we are who we are and we care about what we care about. And that's where you're going to be the difference between a product and a brand that has real lasting power. I love that. That's a good quote. So with everything that's going on with the pandemic, have you seen buying behaviors change or like earlier when you were mentioning about uh, reasons people are canceling, like have you seen new reasons pop up for, you know, why they're canceling that were different than months ago or why they're buying that's very different than six months ago? Yeah, I mean, six months ago, we definitely had more people, you know, it was it was harder to get people to buy alcohol online, right? Mm-hmm. It's generally, you're going from one place to another. It's not, it's, oftentimes an impulse purchase. You're on your way to a friend's house or on your way to a party. You know, I would say we've seen an uptick in the way people are purchasing our products more than, you know, more than we've seen the, some of the difficulties that other brands are seeing during the pandemic because they don't want to go out. You know, this is not something that historically people buy in a in a forward-looking sort of predetermined fashion, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's, and that's changed. Um, you know, they want, they want things at home. They don't want to have to really think about it and they're not going out as much. And so that that's been huge for us where we've actually seen a huge lift in online purchasing and online subscription. Great. And how are you guys leveraging mobile? I know earlier you had mentioned SMS and like, how do you think about that? Especially when it comes to mobile ordering? We definitely do SMS marketing, you know, the, like I said before, making sure that the mobile experience on our website, we have honestly, I believe it's about 70, 70 to 80% of purchases are made on mobile. Oh, wow. That's which a lot. is crazy. On your website? Yeah. On our website on mobile. 
which is pretty nuts. Yeah. And, and I was, I was really surprised by that, but people are buying on their phones because they're seeing it on Instagram and TikTok and, you know, all of these different, different outlets where, where they're sitting on their phone and they're clicking through. And so making sure that process is seamless has been really important. That's huge. That's a very big number. I wouldn't have expected it to be that high on your website. So where are these customers coming from? Like, what are your best channels right now where you're getting the most customers from? So we've seen, we've seen a lot of success. We're really trying to kind of diversify um, away from just Facebook and Instagram, though, obviously that's, that's a big funnel for, for many brands, but it becomes, you know, it becomes addictive and, um, and it can become, it can be fickle and expensive. And so we're really trying to diversify different ways that we acquire customers that are more organic whether again, that's our brand ambassador program, influencer programs, we've actually seen a lot of success on TikTok and we, that's not paid because uh, we're alcohol. So we, we can actually, we, we can actually advertise on TikTok. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that has to be, you know, organic and influencer driven. And funnily enough, I was pretty surprised, but we've seen a fair amount of return on podcast advertising as well. Oh, that makes sense. Cause podcast listening is up as we know. So yeah, that makes sense for that to work out well. Yeah, and and our and our email marketing is is pretty strong. So once people are in the funnel, um, you know, we do see a fair amount of lift with with emails and just making sure that all of it's on you know on brand and the brand voice is really consistent and makes people feel like we're not just a bot, but we're real people that are reaching out to them. We've found to be to be something that consumers get excited about. That's cool. So. Earlier, you just mentioned about influencers and TikTok. How are you going about partnering with influencers? Like, who do you find to be the best influencer? Like, how do you find those people and how do you work with them? Because we've had a lot of listeners ask about working with influencers and not like people don't really understand, like, how do you start those relationships? Do they actually have a good ROI? Like, how do you find good ones? So, yeah, let's dive into that a bit. It is, it's tough, right? And I think we're in a very lucky position because nobody's going to say no to free product from us. Okay. So that's how you <laughs> right. get them in. You As, offer them free for product. The, for the, for the most part, it's like, do you want to try this out? Um, here's what we're all about. Here's who we are making sure that those interactions are, are direct and mm-hmm. actually a real person, right? Like not templating things, doing your research on, you know, what these people are about, what their who their consumers are, or following is rather how engaged they are really doing your homework and being thoughtful in the way that you partner. And, and I'm a huge advocate of quality over quantity. So I would rather have a longer term partnership with a fewer number of people where it's kind of where they're repeating rather than just like one huge post from, you know, from a large scale influencer. We've seen bigger ROIs on the smaller, the smaller people with, with the higher engagement. Yep. Yeah. I've heard that same theme. Is there a certain level where, you're like, up until this point, like if you have this many followers or less, free product will win them over. And then after this point, then they're just going to be looking for money or something else. Like, is there a certain barrier maybe? It varies. It really varies because I think, you know, for us, people get excited about us for different reasons, whether, and kind of, as I mentioned before, whether it's product, whether it's the mission and they kind of just want to get behind it, whether it's just being part of the community, right? And so we've seen people want to post and engage for all sorts of different reasons. Um, There isn't really a fine math to it. Mm -hmm. I would say the more 
sort of macro the influencer is. We found, the, you know, the more that they, they want to get paid, but also it really depends on who it is. But, but by and large, I would say that the returns are not as good. Yeah, that's, that's good to know. So what is a favorite piece of content that either you've created or an influencer has created where you're like, this was either really fun or funny or drove a lot of, you know, purchases, anything come to mind? So we have, we have a a small kind of silly thing that we do. That's, um, we have like this weird subcult of grandma's drinking them. Oh my gosh. (laughs) That's great. kind of funny. And so um, there's this one influencer we've worked with called Ms. Patty Cake. And she's done like the funniest content for us where, you know, she's this like fab grandma and she'll like dress up in full extra clothes and, you know, be drinking our cans of wine and stuff like that. So, I mean, that's one of my personal favorites, whether it's the one that drives the most traffic. I um, Another partnership that we did that's been really great is Serena Kerrigan, her and her Instagram show. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but tell me about it. Yeah, yeah, totally. So during quarantine, she started, she basically created like the first reality television show on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And she started going on live dates on Instagram live with random guys from her house. Uh-huh. And it became such a funny sort of cult, culty following thing where people would just log in. It's actually at on Wednesdays at 8.30 most of the time for, you know, just to watch her go on a date and whether it's like, you know, whether she goes on a second date or whatever. And and so we we sponsored her for her second season. And I think that's one of the big things too. It's like the bigger the influencer is, you know, the more brands they're working with. And we really like to find people who are fun and own themselves and, you know, very like mission aligned and empowered that are earlier and up and and coming. We found that to just be way more effective. Oh, that's great. I need to go and watch that. That sounds really funny. How'd you find her and how do you find these smaller people? Because that always seems like the hardest part for me anyways, when I like think about like, oh, go find a influencer who has a good following and these people will actually want what she has or he has. Uh, but they're not too big where they, you know, don't ask for crazy things. Like, how do you find those people? That is a great question. And, you know, the team is really good at that. (laughs) I'm not necessarily doing that all myself these days, but I would say that, you know, it's, it's especially tough for younger brands because there is such a capacity constraint in terms of time. And it really, really is a full-time job keeping your finger on the pulse on what's going on on, on social. Right. And I think it changes so quickly. What people are doing online changes so quickly. I mean, they can change in a day, right? And making sure that you're that you're responding without without losing your authenticity and also just being engaged with, you know, with your consumers and who are they following and what are they excited about and seeing if those audiences are 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 like are like-minded people. And so it's a lot of keeping your finger on the pulse. And frankly, it's a lot, it's a lot of time. What are you seeing when you sponsor a series on Instagram like that where it's you know, more product placement where it might not be something that that person's referencing, but it's just kind of in the scene versus the ROI on a platform, maybe like TikTok, where they're probably putting it more front and center. Like that's what their post is about. Like what kind of ROI should someone expect when utilizing those two different methods? I mean, honestly, it varies because, you know, a lot of the time in TikTok, it's actually, it's not necessarily just about 
what the product is. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of the time it it is something that they just happen to be drinking while they're saying something funny and then they might like off the cuff mention it. Whereas on Instagram, you're looking at more of a hard post and you can, you can track the ROIs with, you know, specific codes that you're giving, you know, that you're giving influencers and, and stuff like that. So it, it's something that I think we're really trying to fine tune in terms of how do you track those ROIs in an effective way. But for us, we've seen that, you know, TikTok engagement in particular is really interesting because, because it's still, it's still newer and the algorithms aren't, you know, as tightly, as tightly figured out as, as Instagram is um, from, from kind of what, what we've started to see. And, and so the ROIs can be much higher again, it it totally varies and it it really depends on the content of the person. Got it. That makes sense. Are you working on any new crazy things like crazy marketing campaigns or channels that you're trying out or anything where you're like, I have no idea if this will work, but we're going to try it. Absolutely. I mean, we're really trying to build out our own content marketing platforms. You know, we launched a podcast that did, that did quite well, that um, I was actually the host of that's nice. called Made by Chicks. And cool. yeah, and and so figuring out, you know, we're trying to build out more of what does our newsletter look like? How are we bringing value add content to people? And, and how are we doing it in a way that's not necessarily just sales emails, but really, you know, addressing who we are and, and giving people value add outside of our product alone, right? And so that's, that's one of the big challenges that I think we're going to see in, in 2021 is, you know, how do we build that in a way that has a strong ROI and, you know, and what do those ROIs look like? And, and is there, you know, what kind of partnerships can we get involved with? And, and these types of things is something that we're really going to focus on for next year to get away from the Instagram addiction, if you will. Yeah. I think that's good to start exploring new things like that. And yeah, we work with companies all the time who are thinking about building podcasts or, you know, sponsoring podcasts. And it's definitely a good avenue to explore because it's only increasing, at least podcasting is only increasing the amount of people listening. For sure. For sure. All right. So let's move over to the lightning round. This is where I'm going to ask you a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready, Alix? I am so ready. All right. First, we'll start with the hard one. What one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? I think the biggest thing that will have an impact on e-commerce is the social climate. Tell me a bit more. I think it really depends on sort of what happens with COVID and civil unrest and all of those types of things, because that's what really starts to clog up people's feeds. And um, they're seeing a lot of that. And so that's where we see, you know, CACs increase dramatically is when there's a lot going on in the world around. That's what I would say. Got it. Makes sense. That's a good one. What's up next on your reading list? Never Split the Difference, which is a... Yes, a negotiation book um, from, I believe it's a CIA interrogator. Yeah, we just had someone else recommend that. I think it was just a couple of Oh, really? Ago. Yeah, so that's a popular book. I'll have to definitely check it out now. What's up next on your Netflix queue? Oh, I mean, obviously The Crown, but, <laughs> but definitely watching that. The Queen's Gambit was amazing too. Yes, I'm watching The Queen's Gambit right now. It's so good. It's amazing. I'll have to check out the crowd. I haven't, I haven't seen that one yet though. I always just take recommendations from our guests and that's what guides my Netflix queue from all of you guys. So, <laughs> well, yeah, I would, um, I would love any recommendations because I feel like the whole world has just straight up run out of Netflix. <laughs> I know. Yeah. We got to make more content. We need it. Exactly. Exactly. Give the people what they want. Netflix and Bev. <laughs> what one thing do you not understand today that you wish you did? 
I wish I had a better grasp on American history. I went to I went to high school abroad, and so I actually missed my junior year when you were supposed to take American history. Um, and so that is, I was taking history abroad. So I actually don't have a great background in that. And I really wish I did, especially right now. Oh, that's a good one. Because they always say history repeats itself. And yeah, that's something it I does dive into deeper as well. It does indeed. Research. I just, I wish I were better at like reading biographies and historical books, but I'm, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, there's so much going on right now, but that's a good, uh, a good thing to lean into. And the last one. What piece of tech is making you most efficient right now? Superhuman, the email. Oh, do you like it? Yeah, I love it. It's definitely helps with my efficiency dramatically. Yeah. Otherwise, I, I wish I could say Asana. My team uses it very well. I'm a little bit of the slow adapter, but Superhuman uh, has been really awesome. Oh, cool. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I've heard so much about it and there might be something I need to check out next. All right, Alix, it's been awesome having you come on the show. Where can people find out more about you and Bev? Absolutely. So uh, you can check us out at drinkbev.com um, and follow us on Instagram at drinkbev and uh, subscribe to our newsletters. Awesome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.